perfect recording. Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Hello, welcome to the Lean Whiskey Podcast. Uh, as you might already tell, this is not Mark Rabin, this is Jamie Flinchball. Uh, Mark will be out this episode, um, but I have with my with me a, a co-host and Susan Pleasant. Um, and uh, Susan, we've we've known each other a, a long, long time. Uh, how did we first meet? Well, Jamie, it's been almost twenty years. Uh, I met you in November of 2001 at the Lean Learning Center. I had just joined Wise Foods as a senior vice president of operations there. And our top team of leaders had come to uh, the Lean Experience to start our Lean journey. And um, I've been on my Lean journey with you and Andy for almost 20 years now. Had a lot to learn then and still do. Yeah, one of my favorite stories of of that that entrance uh, for you. I mean, that was the very beginning of the, the Lean Learning Center. We had only been open to a few months up to that point. Right. And uh, yeah, the executive team came to us and said, hey, we're hiring a new uh, you know, VP of operations. And, and uh, what if this person doesn't support Lean? And uh, so we said very clearly, well, then don't hire them, right? If that's your vision, uh, hire somebody that supports your vision. And then you told us afterwards that you were you were thinking, hey, I really want to go on a lean journey. What if, what if the senior management of the company I'm joining doesn't support lean? So you, you, you both, you both wanted lean, <laughs> uh, but it didn't come up in conversation yet. So I right. always found that amusing. So um, yeah, so we've known each other a long, long time. Um, you know, first as a client, uh, and then and then as a partner, um, where we worked together uh, with clients for quite a long time. So. Why don't you tell us a little more uh, about yourself for our listeners? Sure. Um, I I started my manufacturing career with Frito-Lay. Frito-Lay at the time was a top performing company, best of the best in that field and in some regards best in the world at what we did in snack food manufacturing. We did some things that just come right out of the lean playbook. It was how how we operated. And I thought all companies operated that way. Um, I took a position VP of operations with Nabisco uh, in the confections divisions at the Lifesaver Company and found that everybody didn't operate the way Frito did. Went on a a bit of a journey there, um, left there and went to, um, I worked for two private uh, equity firms as VP of operations and those companies had no systems. So at that point, I began to understand how it was that I would structure a lean journey and found that it's difficult to get it started from the beginning, um, which is how I met, how I came to know the Lean Learning Center. Um, I've been consulting for um, almost 12 years now. Think about that. Yeah, quite a while been in the consulting space for almost 12 years, and um, I love it. Because what I really enjoy is a sparkle in people's eye when this begins to work and um, how people feel when they overcome some of the struggle that comes with it too. 
Uh, right now, I'm doing some some work with um, the the shipyard that makes um, submarines and aircraft carriers for the Navy. Um, and on the other side of it, I work with a company that um, cans and bottles Pepsi products and carbonated water. So there we go. That's what I'm doing today. That's quite the quite the spectrum. And I, I think we always, uh, you know, we're a good match working with each other because when, you know, we brought you into the company um, and we had some chances to partner on clients and we were just catching up before we started recording on some old names that we had we had worked right. with together on. But but I think I think you and I always uh, had the same bias in clients where it was really about the people, right? So we we wanted yeah. the company to do well and we wanted the journey to go well. But if we could light, if we'd really light up a few people that you know would be names that would circle back around twenty years later or twelve years later, that that's really what drove us and, and gave us energy. I think we're very much the same in that way. Yeah, it's it's a great thing to see people hit the I believe button and and catch on uh not to just the tool, but to the process of making things better every day. Uh, and it's it's really cool when it works. Yep, absolutely. So um yeah, so it's a little bit about why we're here and you know we've we've known each other a long time, haven't gotten to work together uh very recently, but we've always stayed in touch. Um and uh, you know, I, I can't remember how we uh, learned each other liked whiskey. I know with our travels together, you, you learn a lot of things. Um, but um, I thought, you know, I, I know you like whiskey. And um, obviously, we've had many late nights talking about lean stuff as, as we've traveled together at clients over the years. So I thought, I thought you'd make a, a fun co-host, um, as Mark and I always enjoy just sort of what feels like late night conversations over a drink. There you go. Absolutely. So, uh, so we are into a, you know, a glass of whiskey each. Um, and as, as Mark and I tend to do, we, we, uh, we end up with a category and, and, and our category is extremely narrow this time. Um, uh, basically the Dalmores. Um, and, uh, uh so we, we both picked a, a Dalmore. We just both happen to have one from the same distillery, a different whiskey from the same distillery in our collection. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it is an interesting story before we get into what we're both drinking because, you know, their, their heritage, not the whiskey itself, the heritage goes back to the, you know, 1200s, um, when, uh, a member of the clan Mackenzie had saved King Alexander III from a, a charging stag. And, uh, and, and, and so the, the, the king had granted them the right to use the, the stag is an emblem on their coat of arms, which then eventually in the 1800s became part of the, uh, uh, the whiskey brand. Uh, and now every bottle you get has the, has this, this, the stag head on the, on the bottle, which is uh, where it all ended up. So it's a, it's an interesting story from a, a, a darn good uh, uh, distillery. So you chose uh, you chose the Dalmore 15. So uh, uh, 15 years. So it's a, you know, tell me a little bit about it, including including what you what you get out of it. Yeah. So um, I I am uh, I enjoy a good Scotch whiskey. I like single malt. I don't color outside of the lines a lot. I know what I like. I know what I don't like. Um, and 
I was introduced to to Delmore by a very good um, waiter who knew his whiskeys in Pittsburgh last spring. And I enjoy the smooth but rich flavor of it. Uh, it it's it is um, really really a, a great drink. The color's nice. The flavor's nice. Uh, it looks great in my crystal glass. Um, but the thing that I think is interesting is that it is um, it comes from the same cast as the eighteen years. Um, whiskey does it spends 12 years in the oak cask and another three years in the very special sherry cask that the 18 year does um so you know for a little little less money i still get a tremendous value and a great scotch whiskey experience with this one yeah that's and i I didn't i didn't know that about the 15 until we started talking about them it's 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 interesting that you know, first of all, I do think Dalmore punches above their weight. Um, you know, an 18 Dalmore or a 15 Dalmore is, is I think, richer than a, a 15 of many other, uh, yes. many other brands. And, um, and, and the price sometimes reflects that. But, um, uh, but yeah, the 18, which I'm drinking, is, you know, 14 years in those, um, those white oak uh, casks. Followed by um, uh, another four in the in the sherry in the sherry casks. Uh, um, so same same process, same basic ratio, just a little longer for the eighteen. And what's interesting is that the company they get their sherry casks from, they've had a relationship that goes back over a hundred years. Um, a hundred years to get sherry casks. Just to get sherry casks from the same place for all that time and. I know they have them using, you know, ex bourbon casks for their initial <laughs> maturing all that time for sure. Um, but, but it is, you know, you, you talk about how, uh, how you, know, you have certain embedded knowledge around how you build your company and your product. Um, and, and sure, maybe anybody could go off and try to buy these casks and age it for the same time. But, but this is a relationship that's a hundred years old. You're not going to come in and just outbid them for, for some casks. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm not day. sure that a, a purchasing officer would be able to talk them into a lower priced alternative. No, I don't, I don't think so. So um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really good whiskey. Um, you know, I, I happen to be enjoying mine and in, in, in two new, two new Christmas presents. One is um, a, a Norland rock heavy tumbler. It's, it's the heaviest tumbler um, I've ever picked up. I, I almost forget how heavy it is. And if you, if you forget, it's just going to stay on the table as your, your hand goes up, but it's, it's uh, got lots of ridges in the bottom. So it just kind of allows the, uh, uh, the whiskey to open up. And then the other thing is my mother-in-law got me a, uh, a an artisanal uh, handmade uh, uh, glass dropper. Impressive. Water. So I always, I always put, especially in the the better whiskeys, I always put in a little, a little water just to open it up. And this is, this is quite the, uh, uh, the simple but artful, artful gift. It just makes. Yeah. It well, one, one quick better. side note on that. I had a, a bartender at the hotel in Glasgow when we were doing some work there with uh, Network Rail. The bartender in Glasgow taught me about. Um, 
is it one piece of ice in the size of the ice or is it one drop of water? We sat there one evening after work and he would give me successive um, taste with just one drop of water. Now I haven't gotten the artisanal glass yet, but I do enjoy having just the right ice. Yeah. No, it, it, it makes a difference. And, and um, again, these things have been sort of bottled up for 15 or 18 years. So, um, you know, there's a lot still sort of locked in that the, the water, water helps unlock. Um, and, and I haven't, I haven't done the precise, you know, try one drop, try two drops and, and taste the difference, blind tasting or anything like that. But I, I've done enough to know that it, it, it does help. And, and uh, uh, certainly again, when I'm, uh, the, the, I think of especially a, a nicer pour, I want to enjoy every minute of it. And, and that includes the pouring of it. So. Uh, right. I understand. I understand at some point I'll graduate and be able to, to, separate and identify the mandarin or orange versus the vanilla versus the apples and the chocolate finish. I haven't, I haven't developed the skill yet, but um, I appreciate the output. Uh, it's a good, it's a good whiskey. Yeah. Well, I will hear, you know, podcasters and others that, that talk about whiskey who, who, who are professionals and, and they get different tasting notes than the producer does. And so, I do think in the end, it's, it's still your palate and right. what you enjoy and what you taste. And, and I always, you know, taste it and look at the tasting notes and I'll get a couple of them and not the others. And that's okay. That's what I taste. And that's what I enjoy. It's okay. so all that matters. Well, as we, as we get to sample our, our drinks, um, as, as always, we're going to, we're going to cover a listener question as well as first a, uh, a news article and kind of our, our reactions to the news article. So um, uh, we, we picked one that I thought was really interesting because uh, as, as you know, we've always talked about lean, not just being about process. It's about mm-hmm. people in process together and that interplay. And this is a good article that I think, um, you know, highlights that intersection. Uh, and it's basically that overworked Japan, which, you know, does have a, an overworked culture, at Microsoft, they tested a, a four-day work week, and uh, productivity, the headline is soared. I don't know if soared's the right word, but uh, productivity increased with a four-day work week, um, which is, is very uh, um, non-traditional in terms of approaches. I mean, usually we hear about four-day work weeks about giving people time back, not about a method to increase productivity. Um, so, uh, so I think it's an interesting article. Um, I don't think it gives us any answers, but it does lead to lots of questions. So what was your, what was your first reaction when you read the article? Well, my first reaction was um, what other factors changed and, and did they really run the test long enough? Um, you know, I've, I've had organizations go to four-day work weeks for 10 hour days, as opposed to, you know, working 30 or 35 hours and being paid for 40. Uh, I've had them keep the same 40 hours and do that in 44 days. Um, But the productivity and, and I've had um, companies that were very productive with that change kind of touted as a benchmark change. But the thing that made the benchmark 
could have been how people were being managed and led through that change. The the very successful one that I have recently spent time with um, had not only work hour changes, but they changed um, the way that they uh, handled inconvenient schedules. Gee, did everybody have, did one group always get Saturday and Sunday or how did they split that up? How did they share the inconvenience? How did they consistently meet the expectations so that the work was there for 40 hours? Uh, how did they manage communication across four teams of people coming to work in a week? How did they manage shift to shift communication, lead, you know, management to management communication? Um, they spent a tremendous amount of time starting with some standard work for both management and frontline so that there was some stability in how work was done. So there was a lot of investment that went into those groups that were very productive that culminated in a successful shift to four days. Yeah, and this this experiment I think is is far from scientific. They only did it for five weeks. Yeah. Um, I'd like to see a two-year study or something or an AB, you know, two two similar offices and one changes and one doesn't. Um, but really, I mean, you, you, you know, you put out free coffee or you uh, move people's desks or uh, change the lighting, you know, all of a sudden people have to react to become more in tune with what, how they're working. And, and I think, you know, you're going to change people's productivity in any case. Um, so I think the experiment is far from valid in terms of how it was executed. Um, but that being said, it does, does lead us to some interesting, interesting questions. Um, cause certainly, I mean, this is true in many places, but I think more so true in the United States, um, short of a technology change or a major process change, there's sort of an assumption that an hour of output equals an hour of output. And so therefore you work somebody long, more hours, you take less vacation, you, you know, put in some overtime, you're going to get more output. Um, and so there's sort of this fundamental assumption that works in management circles that, you know, you can make systematic changes to productivity by changing work processes or using technology, but inherently the relationship between the person and the process is sort of fixed and linear. Um, but that, that very is unlikely to be true. Yeah, you know, it's, it's um, in, so, in some industries, what you'll see that reinforces this kind of, I think, mistaken um, uh, assumption that an hour of output requires an hour of input. You'll see people and organizations throw labor at the need to improve output. And without a change in how the work is done, it just multiplies the chaos and confusion. So you're really not getting, and for every hour of work you put in, you're not getting an hour's worth of output out. It's not a one-for-one -one relationship. So if you drop back to this change, I think this particular change in the place that I saw it work, they were, they reduced the frustration that occurs and the waste that occurred in the hours that people were working. 
people came in, they were rested, they had had time off and a chance to decompress and be ready for the work that they came into. Um, and their output did go up. Um, it, it, it went up, it went up a lot. Um, but it wasn't just the work week change that drove that. Yeah. And, and for those of us that have a, you know, an above average amount of control over our work uh, methods and environment, I think we've become pretty aware that, that there's other factors at play that an hour doesn't equal an hour. For example, uh, you know, when I, I can't do real writing in my, in my office, in my office is where I do coaching calls and I write emails and I do tasks. But when I need to write, even this afternoon, I was, I was writing a blog post and um, uh, trying to finish one up. And I, so I went, drove down the street, went to a coffee house, different environment. And I, I churned that baby out in no time because I write better when I'm not at my, my work desk. I change my mindset around that particular task. That's just an example, right? But the point is, is that there's a, a relationship between the person and their work that goes beyond process design. And so, you know, as, as managers, as leaders, as individuals, that's probably a relationship that we should seek to better understand cause and effect. Yeah. You know, it, there's, um, I don't know that everyone could change and run down to the coffee shop to get their work done, but I agree with what you're saying. Now I can sit at my office and be very productive with work here. I put certain music on and I, it, it just flows when I am here in my office, which is very different than when I'm in the workspace, you know, with a client because there's, you know, a variety of interruptions and there's different work that happens there. The thing that interests me most about that is the notion of what it takes to reduce people's frustration when they are in the workplace. We have spent some time over the last year asking, you know, frontline to mid-level management about the frustration in the workplace, asking frontline people, what, do you, what frustrates you? And it's 95% of the time that frustration isn't about somebody that they don't get along with. It is about the things that stop them from being productive where they're at. And that frustration, the inability to deliver the excellence that they aspire to, that frustration bubbles over into more slowdown. And when you begin to peel that back and take it away, systematically, there's a multiplier effect that happens with their throughput. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's important is, you know, what is going to uh, really lead to that flow, right? That, that, that workflow, that, that mindset, that honing in, and what gets in the way of that, right? So those are the frustrations often, whether they're relationships and I'd imagine that with the 10 hour, four days a week, um, you know, a big part of it, especially that this test took place in Japan, that it's the frustration of getting to work in the first place and then getting home. Because, right? yes. you know, Japan is not the easiest place to travel around in. If you're doing a 10 hour work day, theoretically, maybe you're missing a little bit more of rush hour. You're doing it less often as a ratio. Uh, I mean, you're doing, you're doing, client work right now at a place where 
uh, people, uh, it's so difficult to get to work. They drive early and then sleep in their cars for a little bit before they yes. go to work. And, and if you can just remove some of that burden, um, short of the whole work from home trend, if you can remove some of that burden, then, then your, your productive work to frustrated time ratio starts to change. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you a story. There's a, a a young man that I have worked with, and you know, for um, you know, professional reasons, I won't recognize his name here. But um, I've had an opportunity to work with him for about four months now. He had a team. He was assigned a team of people. He had twenty highly skilled employees. That he was assigned in the normal uh, headcount for that level of for a foreman to have is is 10 people for that particular work. He had tw- over 20 people, 20, 21 people. He was given the assignment because it was a tough assignment. People are mostly working outside. Um, and he was a bit overwhelmed with it. And he said, I had more people than I could get around to. He said, we had more moving parts to handle. He said, I was driving myself crazy. And then he said, what I did, I decided that what I would do is look after my people first. And I would be sure they had what they needed to win. And I would be sure that they knew how they did at the end of each day and how they felt about how they did at the end of the of each day. He said, and then I would work on everything else after I did that. And he was tremendously successful just by stepping back and simplifying to what do they need to win? And what do I need to do to keep them recognized and feeling that they've accomplished something? And if we've got a problem, let's take care of it. And for a guy who's 10 years into his career, I thought that was very good insight. Let's go find out what they need and then let's go leverage that. And he was very successful with it. Well, I think a key part of what you shared in that example is uh, being able to tell people, you know, whether they had a good day or not. And that, and that, that means in part, right, sometimes it's just how you feel, but sometimes it's about defining output, right? What does good look like in terms of output, which is, you know, if you measure productivity, it's, it's uh, you know, output divided by input, right? The input is the hours. That's easy. Yeah. But in, 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 in this experiment, the output was fairly easy because it was sales. So these are mm-hmm. people doing sales and you have X number of dollars or Y number of dollars or uh, pretty easy to do that experiment. Um, but unless you can define output um, in a way that you can relate it back to your input or your effort, not easy to tell if you're being more productive or less productive. Yeah, so Jamie, you know, that's the reason that they have scoreboards at sports events. So we can know how we're doing. And it's also why in sports events, they have somebody there taking all of those statistics so that they know how they're doing, not only for the game, but for every play in the game, every quarter in the game. They they have those statistics right there. You take that away and they begin to lose focus on what it is they're doing. Yeah, and that's, you know, it has, that requires that you define the system, right? And yeah, and so, you know, I'm a soccer guy and I, I uh, it's interesting to see how statistics and data collection through technology has changed dramatically in the last 10 to 15 years. We can track how far people have run, how many passes they've made, what passing 
completion percentage they have. I've I've kept that as a stat from the own games that I've coached. Um, you know, not every game, but when I when I'm really focused in on passing percentage completion, then that's what I measure, and that's what I try to give myself feedback on, um, as well as as well as the players, um, right? But the score is is an output, right? It's it's lit further down the the, the the pike in terms of results. If you're a coach or you're a player, and it's a Tuesday and your games on Sunday, you, you have to measure some other things and really say here's the inputs or the process metrics that matter that lead to the outputs that I get. And that, that goes back to, you know, lean is understanding cause and effect. And if you don't know what inputs matter to your output, you, you end up with metrics that are very backwards looking and very late. Yeah. So an individual who is the coach of a sports team or the coach that is managing a team of people at work, how is it that you begin to, measure the output of the coach how is it that you measure is if the coach is coaching effectively how do you do that well i think i think the best way ultimately is to understand are they getting what they intended right so the results are results are one thing you know the results matter and so i don't think you'll see any top level coach cutting back to four days a week right these Right. Many of these best coaches are are absolute workaholics, and and they you know they they coach till seventy because they have no interest in retiring. They're just driven uh, for the next the next opportunity to perform and deliver. But you know, if they have a system of play, are they getting their system of play? Right? Are they again using soccer as my my uh, go to analogy? If if they're looking for a passing team, are they seeing that as a result? And yes, that plus other things will lead to wins. Are they seeing work rate? Is it about effort? And are they winning the 50-50 balls or running a lot of miles? And are those inputs, you know, then leading to results in terms of wins and losses? So so I, I, I think, you know, if, if you look at some of the best coaches, they coach a system. They know what their system is. Yes. They, 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 they know that it won't always deliver the result that they want, but they also know that on average it will. And so they keep focused on the system. And if you look at um, uh, Nick Saban, if you look at Bill Belichick, if you look at Pep Guardiola, these are, these are coaches across different sports that focus on, they have a clear understanding of how they want their system to work. Yeah, I think is key for any manager. Mike Krzyzewski in there. I, I'm not a Duke fan, but Mike Krzyzewski has a plan too. Absolutely. He works in the system. Yep. And I th- so I think that, you know, that, that I understanding of cause and effect, right, what matters, what matters in my work, that becomes a manager's job mm-hmm. is, you know, going away back, you know, back away from coaching where it's more tangible yes. um, in terms of what you're measuring. Um. And so then you have to understand, okay, what are, what are the, the outputs in terms of process, in terms of system of work that matters to me, that in my design, in my environment, that really matters? And um, you know, I'll, I'll use this as an example of, of how we changed how something was me- measured. So product development, very difficult to measure, unless maybe you're, you're designing derivations of very small increments and you can produce three a day 
terms of designs, and then there are environments like that. But if you're if you're designing something that you launch every two years, um, it's very difficult to understand what progress looks like yeah. halfway through. And so, you know, it's been popular to have what's called stage gate, which is, you know, three to five opportunities to really evaluate whether you're getting what that you want. Um, but because it's three to five times over a two year window, um, you have a lot vested in that checkpoint. And so it's a very heavy burden of work. Um, you've, you've, you've been working for months since the last checkpoint. So nobody wants to say you're off track because you just can't go backwards. And, and so, you know, in some organizations, we've gone from five checkpoints to 40 checkpoints. And the first reaction is, oh, my God, you're just going to, you know, massively increase the work. But we made them much smaller, much less workload, much more self-checkpoints where people can sort of self-define what those milestones look like and then use them to kind of say, am I on track or not on track? So kind of my analogy is GPS for for product development. You know, I I don't want to know where if I'm on track every four months, I want to know if I'm on track every day or at least something close to that. And then then it's not, the consequences aren't so big. You can, you can say, yeah, we're working well over here. We have some problems over here. Let's shift our focus and get those problems understood. But again, you have to really understand your system is and what matters at every point along that way. Yeah. You know that I've seen that, um, just recently, there's process that I'm working with a team on. It takes, the process took about 15 months across the course of the last four modules that they built. It took 15 months was the best time they ever had done. And what they did, they developed a plan. They understood how to take the waiting out of it and the confusion that comes with being late. Um, they developed a plan that was built on the assumption that you could understand where you needed to be every day out of a week, what they needed to be working on. Just having the plan so that they could have a concrete control on the flow of material into the process, a concrete flow on what people should be working on right now that, that mattered, that concrete plan that they can measure day to day reduced that time by 50%. Now they had to have it so they could access the plan and have their hands on the plan day to day, but going from measuring it in months and quarters to a day to day indicator was and control point was the thing that made that, that possible. Well, yeah, I think increasing the granularity of measurement helps a lot, right? So sometimes, and I I committed, I, as I talked about in the, in the last episode that Mark and I recorded, I evaluate my system of work every, every, uh, continually, but in particularly every new year and make adjustments. And one, two things that I'm going back to, uh, this January, one is that when I have a full day in the office that isn't wall to wall meetings, I actually plan out my day to the minute and Mm -hmm. it's not about uh, operating to that plan. It's about measuring against it. It's about understanding how well I understand my own work. And, and I always learn something when I compare actual to plan 
because I realized I don't understand my own work as well as I thought I did. And so that's one change. The other change is I always in my, in my personal Kanban always have a sort of this week cue. And, mm-hmm. and I've, I've been treating it more like an intention rather than a discipline. And so um, what I used to do when I first started doing that was measuring, okay, I started with, you know, 10 things in the queue for the week. Um, I added five throughout the week. I, I got, you know, 18 things done, but there's still five things left in my queue that I didn't get done because I didn't work on the right stuff, right? And, and so, so those are, you know, changes to my system of work that I'm starting actually literally today um, to improve my own, uh, again, understanding, measurement, and, and ultimately improvement of my own work productivity. Yes. Yeah, so, so you and I both share a bit of a passion for, for understanding personal scheduling and taking waste out. Um, I'm in the process of looking at that as well. I've been tracking what are my interruptions? When is it that I stop value added and start doing other stuff? Which isn't a surprise. That's not, not too hard. But the thing I've learned a lot about over the last six months is when and when do I, how much time do I spend over processing and doing more than is necessary out of my um, drive to deliver a beyond excellent result? And I find my clients are often in that same place. They are going well beyond what is required to do a safe, high-quality piece of work. They're, they're going, striving for perfection, and perfection costs time. Yep. And um, so this, this whole adventure into what is over-processing has um, been, a, been a little bit of an aha moment for me and a few other people that I've worked with. Yeah, I think that's... Um... I think that's real important. And we've said many times in our collective teachings that the waste of overprocessing is the hardest one to see. Um, and as a result, it's often the most common because, uh, you know, it's, it's about delivering more to your customer than your customer wants. And, and so it means you have to have a really good understanding of what your customer wants, which is hard when your customer doesn't even always understand what they want. And so that becomes a, a serious threat to productivity. So, you know, if we, if we sum up some of what we've been talking about here, you know, we have to understand cause and effect, right? How does your process lead to the results you want? You have to have some way to measure output, whether it's measuring the inputs that you expect in your system to deliver the outputs, or if you have a concrete and granular way to measure outputs. Um, you have to understand the relationship between uh, an, a worker, any worker, and uh, their productivity, right? Their work environment, not just process plus plus uh, equals your outputs. Um, and then ultimately, there's there's probably a lot more to be understood to reduce frustrations as a barrier to increasing peak productivity. So those are some of the highlights. Anything I missed that you'd like to uh, to add about this article before we carry on? No, I'm good with that. Fantastic. So. Um, so then we, we get to a listener question, and this is, you know, we, we kind of picked some that were timely in the last uh, last episode. Mark and I talked about sort of, uh, you know, routines at closing out the year and setting up for the next one. 
And uh, certainly an aspect of that was setting goals um, as part of that process. So, so it, it sort of leads into a question we didn't, Mark and I didn't cover, which is uh, less personal and more about the organization, but how should a, a lean organization set goals, right? So this is when, if people haven't done it yet, this is when people are still thinking about it. They might have put something down, but they had to based on dates, and now they're actually thinking about it for real because they hate what they wrote down already. Um, so it's that kind of year. So, so it's, it's you know, how does a lean organization set goals? What, what, what's different about that for a lean thinking company? Well, I think the first thing that you um, see in a lean thinking company is they are setting goals not as a percent to a prior year, but as a milestone on the way to a future state they're going to. So they're looking at where they're going more than they're looking at where they've been. Um, I think also in a lean organization, they're understanding not only the what, what goal are we trying to achieve, but they spend a fair amount of time dissecting and understanding the how. And then the third thing that I think is maybe the most important, um, they understand the priorities. What's, what's important? What is the, if we can only do one thing, what's the one thing we're going to do? Um, and what's truly number two. So I think clarity around priorities is um, a very, very powerful thing that I see in the lean organizations that I've worked with. Yeah, so, so I think I have a criteria to add to that. But before I do, this, this point you made about, um, you know, taking last year's performance and adding 6% or subtracting 6% or whatever it might be, it, it, it really is the idea of, of using past performance as the, the number one indicator of future performance or a need to perform, as opposed to um, what is needed or what is possible, which are very different ways to approach that mm-hmm. question. Um, so do, do people pick that, you know, last year plus 6% because it's easy, easy to achieve, easy to set? Um, you know, why, what's, what's the pull for that, you know, plus 6% type of approach? Well, I think the pull is that one place that I think creates pull for that is it's easily easy to measure. We know how we did last year. Uh, it's a little harder for us to measure what we can't quite quantify right now. What is the customer going to want? Um, how is it that we're going to gauge what's happening in a market that is unpredictable? So until you understand your customer and you understand your market and the problems that are out there to solve or the opportunities there are to innovate in that market, I think that it's difficult to say what is it we need to be. Yeah, and I, I, I think that's the important work, right? So, you know, it should be what what is this process? What does this work? Whatever it might be, sales, quality, productivity, whatever. What does it need to be to accomplish what we want to accomplish? And especially it as applies to customers. If you don't know what they need, then you're, you're clearly at a disadvantage, right? So I remember working with a, a company that, that had, a, you know, sort of internal competitors. They had multiple factories doing the same stuff. And so they'd compete against each other and they'd 
spend all their time comparing and contrasting. And then when I, when I really push them to look externally uh, against what they would be competing with in the marketplace, turns out they were off by double digit percentages. They were, they were so obsessed with comparing against each other, they never really understood what was possible, what was, what was demanded, what the market would bear. Um, uh, they were so infatuated with their own system, they never really went to understand what was out there. And, you know, to me, I would, if, if we sit there setting a goal and say, well, we don't, we don't know what the product performance needs to be. We don't know what the cost performance needs to be. We don't know what the, whatever. I, I would rather somebody put in a blank space and say, we don't know what it is yet, but our first task is to go figure it out and fill in the blank. Um, cause, cause why should we start charging towards a number if we have no idea if it's the right number? Yeah, I, and now you know I I have a uh, a bit of a different take on that. Insofar as I see people who will say, "Okay, what we want are the zeros," you know, particularly operations people. We want zero injuries. We want zero quality defects. We want zero waste. They get into this land of zero because it's easy. And if zero is always the answer, then better than last year is always a step towards that direction. My biggest lesson in that came when I was leading a distribution organization um, at Frito-Lay. I worked with a gentleman named Larry Strecker, who still today is one of my most admired people in my career. Larry Strecker's idea was that our job wasn't to be the best distribution operation in the country. Our job was to provide the best service to the customer in the country. We went out and worked with sales, observed what the sales and distribution team were doing. We found our sales team was spending most of their time moving merchandise and putting it into stores. We redirected our efforts in a productive way to deliver that material to the store and our revenues went up by a large percentage beyond what anyone had thought we could do because the sales guys could spend time selling. We spent time doing what we were doing best, delivering in a different way. And we broke the rules, but um, we, we had a great year on distribution performance and sales performance and our profits were higher than anybody at Frito-Lay that year because we didn't limit ourselves to functional goals or the land of zeros said, how can we improve the system and make it better than it's ever been? Let's go see where, what the customer needs. Yep. Yeah, and I think anytime you get into the land of zeros, you, you have to find a way to make progress or risk or probability more granular, more visible, because you're at, the, you're at the, the whimsy of something bad happening at, at, a, at a random interval that you, you're, it's too right. to react to. Yeah, people don't get inspired by um, not doing as bad as we did last year. Right. Let's do something great this year. And here's what we call great. So one of the criteria to what makes a lean goal or a lean organization setting goal different that I'd add to your list is uh, the premise of learning. And, you know, you certainly know that I, I put learning um, at the center of lean, not as, a, as, as an, an add-on. Um, even when we did the house of the Hitchhiker's Guide to Lean, it was, 
right there in the middle, it was all about learning. Um, and I had done a lot of work with the, the organizational learning community. So to me, I, I think a, a lean thinking organization really separates goals that they know how to hit. So the known, right? They just need to execute. They need to focus and execute, build a plan and drive it. And the unknown, which is where learning's involved. And it could be a new capability. It could be a problem they don't understand. Uh, uh, it could be a, a, a test they want to go do, but, but, but really open, you know, I think a lot of people focus on goals to be, yep, we're going to set a goal. We know we can hit. We're going to drive and focus. And that's great. But then we never go explore the stuff that we don't understand. And I think comfort with learning-oriented goals, whether the goal is to learn or learning is required to achieve the goal, I think lean organizations are more comfortable in that more ambiguous uh, space, in part because they know how to learn. So even though it's ambiguous, they have the ability to go pursue closing that knowledge gap. Right. And I will, I will say that learning creates a place to change the culture. Now, you taught me this, but I've seen it come alive with some of the coaching that I've worked with. People are a little cautious to change and try something new because they're afraid that they will be blamed if it doesn't happen. But if you invite them to help you learn about it, then they step into a place that they were uncomfortable to go before. And it's, it's a great way, one, to achieve the learning and two, get to get people comfortable with change and trying something different that they are not used to. Yeah, and I think that's the, you know, one of the big differences of a learning organization is a non-learning organization is a fear, is a fear of the wrong answer, fear of getting it wrong. We're a learning organization. The only thing that's wrong is not trying something new. Yes. Right? So you may, you, may, you may have a process. You try 10 new things. None of them actually make it better. So you still, your old process is still the best process. You didn't take it for granted. You tried to break it 10 times. It's just that none of those ideas worked. And that's expected, not just not just welcomed and not just, ex, not just allowed, but actually expected that you're going to, you're going to keep trying things. And, and if it doesn't work, you go back to what you're doing before. That's the beauty <laughs> of experimentation, but, but you, you, you keep trying for sure. So, and you've learned something along the way, even if you have, got, have to go back to what you were doing before you've learned something. Absolutely. Keep up with it. All right. Well, we hope, we hope people, uh, have fun setting their goals and, and of course, pursuing them, which is the, uh, the important, important work. Um, so uh, kind of as we, we start to wrap up here, um, some of our closing, uh, maybe return to the, uh, the, the company of whiskey. Um, you might have noticed I've, I've poured a little bit more. Um, I, I rarely get through an episode of this with, with just one pour. Um, <laughs> But that's the, the you know, one of the benefits of doing this from the comforts of my own home is I have nowhere to go after this. Um, right. So so we've you know we've enjoyed wine together. We've enjoyed whiskey together. Um, it is it is you know one of those one of those joys. But you know why why do you uh, prefer whiskey? And I I think this just as before you answer, it's one of the interesting things 
the, the whiskey industry and, and those who promote it are, you know, talk all the time about how male dominated the consumer base is for whiskey. Um, and, and, and they, certainly for, for no reason, um, you know, the marketing is oriented that way and history is, is, is sort of oriented that way. Um, and, and so, you know, in addition to how you got into it, just, you know, why, why do you prefer whiskey? What, what do you enjoy about it? Yeah, well, my snappy answer was, is it doesn't turn my teeth purple like red wine does. But that's my snappy answer. The thing that I've learned um, is that people prefer a whiskey for a reason, and they have a story about it, and there's some heritage about it. I was going to Kentucky to see a friend of mine in Kentucky. He lives in Owensboro. I've known him a long time, and he was telling me about all the whiskey that's made there. I asked my friend here um, if, you know, I could bring back a bottle of whiskey to her. She's an old friend. She's, I've known her. We worked together at Frito Lay. I've known her for 30 years. Um, she and her husband have moved here. And she said, well, while you're there, uh, if you can find a, a bourbon called Pappy <laughs> for $200 or less, will you bring that back? Well, I didn't know. I went up, I go into the store with my friend, Chris, my friend in Kentucky, his name is Chris. And I went to the uh, owner of the store and I said, do you have Pappy for under $200? And five people started laughing. Absolutely. So there's, there's always a story with it. And I think that's the thing I enjoy the most. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think that's great. It is, um, you know, a product of passion, you know, a lot of the, even though there's been huge consolidation in the, in, in the industry, there's also at the same time been, been hundreds of uh, pop, pop up new distilleries, especially in the U S harder to do so in, in more regulated environments. But um, you know, you can, you can buy, uh, buy a juice from a, uh, one of the big, big houses and um, already matured, put your, put it in your own bottle with your own label and, and your own story and, mm -hmm. and, and start selling it. And, um, uh, and, 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 and it doesn't seem to be bothering people that a lot of the whiskey sold under these sort of micro brands isn't even their own making. It's their own selection, but it's not their own making. Um, so it is, it is very personal on both on, on, on the, the production side, on the, on the purchasing side, because you can't just go into any store, as you said, and right. buy whatever you want. Um, uh, I've, I've talked about many times where I get a lot of my whiskey through a, a specialty catalog uh, that I get to sample new stuff. And of course, on the tasting side. Um, and, and honestly, you know, I, I go back to the beginning of the podcast. You talked about how you learned about Dalmore and uh, at, a, at a restaurant in Pittsburgh. And, and I assume that was when you and I went out right. um, at the, at the conference um, at, at the whiskey bar. So, so it, you know, I didn't even realize that when you had selected uh, your Dalmore 15, um, that, 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 that's, that's, that, that dinner we had together uh, was, was where that particular interest started. That was it. But I, 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 it. I do enjoy that. I do enjoy that particular restaurant and that experience. And we sat there for quite a while. Uh, since we both got to walk home in that case. Um, we, <laughs> we didn't have far to walk either, so that made that a little easier. We did not have far to walk to our hotels. So, 
Um, yeah, I, I think the stories behind whiskey, uh, again, both in the production and the and, and the enjoyment of it are are a big part of it. Um, and uh, certainly look look forward to um, you know again part of why Mark and I did this is that we would enjoy each other's company over a glass of whiskey talking shop. Um, right. And uh, you and I have done that many times as we travel together. And so this was just a, a fun opportunity to recreate a, a bit of that. So uh, anything to add before we, uh, before we wrap up here? No, I'm, I've enjoyed it. Like I enjoy all of our conversations uh, and the whiskey was good. So uh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a, it's been a good time to spend together. Yeah, it's been, it's been fun. Um, and we talked for almost a half hour before we started recording and got so deep into content that I, we probably should have recorded that too. <laughs> maybe, maybe that'll be, maybe that'll be another one down the road. Maybe that'll be another one down the road. I think we will find an opportunity to do that again. So, so, so as I, as I close out here, um, you know, we appreciate everyone who's come to listen. Um, uh, if you want to find the podcast, you can go to leanwhiskey.com, whether you spell it K-E-Y or K-Y, leanwhiskey.com and find the podcast on Mark's blog. It's leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey. On mine, it's jflinch.com, leanwhiskey. Um, you know, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever wherever you like your podcasts. And we, we really do appreciate uh, you know, rating, reviewing us, subscribing. Uh, you hope you don't miss a miss an all important episode, but it it helps other people find the podcast and enjoy it as well. So we appreciate uh, all our listeners and their participation in the process. So um, with that, Susan, uh, cheers to you. Cheers, my friend. Thanks very much. Absolutely. <laughs>